Hey, I'm Josh. Hey, I'm Kiana. And And this this is Eight Limbs of Fury, a podcast where we talk about the ups and downs of daily yoga practice, life on capitalist nightmare planet, the threads between spiritual practice and activism, and what role yoga might play in these revolutionary times. We are two young leftists practicing Ashtanga yoga six days a week. And we are here to give a perspective on what's happening in the world as we discover our own spirituality and get more woke by the minute. It is a misnomer or a misunderstanding to think that yoga is inherently progressive mm-hmm. in terms of politics, right? But, um, but certainly I and most of my, the yogis I've worked with were on the left, right? Mm-hmm. And now mm-hmm. you're seeing so many, even like, what's his face? Um, J.P. Sears, who I kind of followed. I thought he was funny most of the time, spouting all this bullshit. Again, conspiratorial kind of nonsense. Mm-hmm. You know? QAnon. And, and literally, like Christiane Northrup, literally posting QAnon bullshit. You know? Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Wow. No, the, the, they, there's an interesting podcast series called uh, TrueAnon Anonymous. Or, well, no, Q, excuse me, not TrueAnon. Those, those are two the same. It's called QAnon Anonymous. And they had a really great episode about how they, the, the New Age to QAnon pipeline is what they called it, about <sighs> how, like, New Agey people just get sucked up into it. And Yoga World has definitely fallen victim to that oh, so really, much. Oh, really? Yeah, one of, their third episode was, like, why spiritual people are vulnerable to conspiracy thinking. You know? uh-huh. wow. And, you know... Because it, there's some aspects of, I mean, like, you know, yogi people might say that they're not religious, they're spiritual. But it's like that religious mental state is very easily co-opted because it, it shares a lot with that kind of cultic thinking. Sure. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Well, um, welcome to the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> um, Does this sound of, good? Yeah, it all sounds right. good. This should be all right. Yeah. Eight Limbs of Fury. Um an explicitly anti-QAnon podcast. We've said this before, but let's just go ahead and start that right here. Um, we're sitting here with our guest, uh, Frank Jude. Frank, do you say? Do you put? Do you put Boccio at the end? Yeah. Well, my full name is Frank Jude Boccio. Okay. Yeah. Frank Jude Boccio. And I use Frank Jude as my first name. Okay. Which it is. Okay. Yeah. I didn't know. Thank you for informing me. Yeah, it's me funny. Of that. I joke that like I'm. New York Italian American with a double name like Billy Bob, you know? <laughs> but it's Frank Jude. I love that. Oh, that's wonderful. <laughs> oh, great. Um, I loved I loved hearing that um, Remsky and a couple other people did that podcast. I'll have to I'll have to check it out and give it a listen because that sounds really juicy. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that sounds really good. Yeah, they all bring their own thing to it too. Like, you know, Matthew's gone really deep into cult dynamics or analysis Julian who's probably more like me is very science based and also uh, values the western enlightenment values you know and then Derek I don't really know Derek personally I know him through them Mm -hmm. Um, seems him and he's also on the left obviously he seems pretty science based but uh, I know less about him Julian and Matthew I both met um, when we were all contributors for the 21st Century Yoga Collection. Cool. Which is still, I think, the only, you know, you talked about, like, the lack of discourse in general in yoga and politics. I think it's still the only book devoted specifically to culture and politics. Wow. And contemporary yoga, yeah. And it's already out for 10 years, I think. Wow, I've never heard of that. That sounds, that yeah. sounds pretty good. Wow. 21st Century Yoga. It was edited by Carol Horton. No, wait. I might be mixing up the names. But anyway, 21st Century Yoga. 21st Century Yoga. Yeah. Oh, cool. I I like that name, too, because that's definitely something. um, When you got here, you would ask, like, how we came into this to recording a podcast. And I was just like, this is the yoga of our time, Mm. right? This is the work right now, at least some of it. Like, there's an individual aspect and there's a collective aspect. And yeah, that's how I view it. Like yeah, yeah, I'm actually starting um, an ethics study course this coming Sunday, and uh, one of the things that I was putting out is like there's there can't be a separation. You know, like lots of times it's like you got to go within. You know, it's like well, the within is a construct of the without. I mean, like mm-hmm. there's no you know from the Buddhist perspective there is no atomistic self. 
mm-hmm. individual, you know. Sure. And so you can't really do one without the other. Mm-hmm. And that's definitely our our view on on why we came into this and why it felt so important because uh, it just felt like just a burst of expression to come out like we're gonna do a <laughs> podcast as yoga people and talk about this <laughs> and um, that's that's where we're at. So, um, Frank, if you wouldn't mind sharing a bit of your story with us and our listeners. Just what's your story? Where are you from? Give us the, give us the, the not the elevator pitch, but give us something quick. Well, yeah, I'm, I, like I said, I was, I'm a New Yorker, and that I will always what, be. Uh, what neighborhood? I was born in Queens, um, but I, you know, like, as soon as I turned, is that true, 18? Like 18 or 19, uh, I started living in the East Village. Um, I was literally only a few blocks away from CBGB's mm. um, and went through that whole punk thing uh, right there. Eyewitness of it, <laughs> very much involved, making uh, like no wave films and stuff. Yeah, yeah. And, oh, uh, cool. Yeah. Um, and then I moved to Brooklyn when Manhattan got really gentrified, like even the, vi- the village got sure. gentrified. Um, and then eventually... For six years, I lived up in the Hudson Valley and then left New York uh, to Oregon and then ended up here in Tucson. Wow. But um, where, yeah. where in Oregon? I was in Eugene. Oh, okay. Yeah. And you didn't do the Portland to Tucson pipeline yeah, that we've heard so much Well, it's, it's funny, you know, like there's so much between the Northwest and here. Like right now at um, my daughter's mom's house, there are a couple of people visiting from Washington and Oregon, you know, mm-hmm. and... It's just no, it's, back and forth. It's a, it's a constant interchange. We met um, we met this couple in Big Bend National Park in southwest Texas, and we were just, like, chatting away. Um, they were from uh, Washington, right, Kiana? Yeah, I think so. Either, yeah, no, Wa- no, they no were, or Portland. Oregon. No, they were, out, they were in Oregon. This is what they do. And then so and they found out we were from Tucson, and they were like, oh, wait, we have a friend from Tucson. And I was like... I was like, I, I have a friend that moved up there. I was like, is she tall and has red hair? And they were like, do you mean Lee? And I was like, yes, Lee. <laughs> <laughs> we're like hundreds of miles away in the mountains. Like, that's Met wild. in a hot spring. In a yeah. hot spring, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's, you know, it makes sense that, you know, I mean, there are times where, like when I lived there in Eugene, I think I only lived 18 months and maybe... I don't want to exaggerate, 13 or 14 of those months were, like, gray, <laughs> <laughs> you know? And uh, and so then you come here, and it's, like, it's, it's great, except uh, then the sun, and, you know, in the summer, <laughs> and it's, like, ah, if I could be bilocating or something, I would probably spend my summers up there. Summers are glorious sure. in, in Oregon. But, uh, I don't. I've oh, always I said bet. I don't blame the snowbirds that come down to Tucson oh. and the rest of the Southwest. Yeah. Like that lifestyle totally checks out. There's yeah. a reason the birds do it. There's a reason <laughs> the birds do it. The humans are. We're, we may as well be birds, right? <laughs> but um, I just want to go back. I think that's great that you identify as a New Yorker. Like we'll always be. Yeah. I just. I love that. That New Yorker pride, <laughs> we could call it, but also. Um, interesting that you came from the punk scene there because we've had a couple guests on here that had a history and well, really just Josh. Oh, on well, episode three, yeah, Josh. Oh no, and Lauren, and there's a oh, good few yeah. people that have a history in like this and Lauren punk punk kind of punk scene, rock, yeah, culture crossover to yeah. yoga that find themselves in yoga. Well, yeah. especially you know, especially of a certain age. I mean, like when I like yoga was. Uh, certainly countercultural when I got into it, you know, mm-hmm. and I've always been kind of an outlier. Like I discovered the Velvet on the Ground when I was about nine or 10 years old. Right. And got to see them when I was 14. Really? And with Lou Reed. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. And Lou Reed got me popcorn. Well, oh, Frank, yeah. dude. <laughs> but the thing that was wild was like, you know, I, you know, the, the first album I ever got was Meet the Beatles, you know, with my allowance money and all that. And I was on that path of listening, you know, and then I discovered in pretty rapid succession, John Cage from the avant-garde classical world, the Velvet on the Ground, and Frank Zappa and the Mothers of Invention. And it was like, I have not been mainstream since. <laughs> <you know? laughs> 
in anything I do, whether it's you know film or or even in my my particular take on yoga and Buddhism, I've always been an outlier. Mm-hmm. You know, um, so punk was just you know. Uh, ironically, I wasn't listening to rock that much. I was very immersed in. There was a period of time in, in New York of avant-garde jazz loft scene, right? Like really out there, free jazz, very aggressive very much fueled by like black nationalist politics sure. and all that and I was there and some of those guys <coughs> and there was one one loft in particular it was on Bond Street and uh, it's called Studio Rivby Sam Rivers and his wife B and uh, these musicians would play their like really hard aggressive wild avant-garde jazz and then they would go down to the Bowery down the block to this bar and I was like what's going on he was like, you should check it out and it was CBGB's oh cool yeah so it was like these you know black avant-gardists who actually got me back into rock through punk you know and mm. yeah. that's so cool that's yeah. rad yeah so I started writing about music and DJing and all that wow wow um she so said a moment ago about how like your counterculture-ness from punk rock has also carried into yoga and, and your views on Buddhism. What do you what do you mean by that? Expand on that a little bit, because I've yeah. I've understood I've I've I understand a, probably this much, a very little about Buddhism. And mm-hmm. um, but no, please please go into it. Oh, okay. Here's an here's uh, an attempt to try and explain my position. <laughs> yes. Right? Um, I I started practicing like reading about Buddhism. I was 16 years old, my sister died, and, you know, I was a science student, but, like, all of a sudden, these big questions were arising, right? So I was reading, you know, people like Camus, but also reading about Buddhism and yoga. But I didn't start practicing until I was about 20. Um, And so I've been practicing for... Oh, my God. 64 years. I mean, 44 years. <laughs> I'm 64. So I've been practicing for 44 Frank years. Frank is 90. Yeah, right. Um, and, um, and so, like, I'm immersed in the tradition. I was, um, I was ordained a Zen Buddhist teacher uh, in the Korean tradition, so it's called Bupsa, mm-hmm. in 2007 in Toronto. And uh, so since 2007, I've been primarily teaching, you know, Buddhism, you know, and particularly Zen, but it's a very different take. I call it Zen naturalism because I've rejected anything that smacks of the supernaturalism that creeped in to like Buddhism, you know? Um, And so I'm in this weird place because I'm, I, I have criticism of secular Buddhists who, um, who think in in many ways secular Buddhists are like saying that they are a return to the original Buddhism, you know, which was free of a lot of the religious cultural stuff, which isn't quite true. Um, And so, like, I'm critical of that, but I'm also not like a traditionalist or a purist. Mm -hmm. Um, I've jettisoned a lot of the same things the seculars have gotten rid of, but I also have reinterpreted a lot of the forms. So if you go on a Zen retreat with me, there is chanting, there's prostrations, there's all sorts of traditional forms. Sure. But they've been reinterpreted so that there's no sense of any kind of, um, like I said, supernatural. Or sure. All. There's no worshipping of a being, yeah. of a deity, as right. like the Buddha as like this weird Yeah, like spirit. the Buddha was deified over time. You, yeah. know, he, he, you know, like over and over again would say, I'm a teacher. You know, like one of the Dharma talks I just gave this past week, was based on a thing where he, where someone asks him to, like, save him from confusion. He goes, it's not my practice to save you from confusion. <laughs> I just, you know, this is, this is the teaching, this is the practice, now do it, yeah. you know? Uh. <laughs> and, and, and I've often said, you know, like, if any teacher or guru, the whole guru culture and all that, uh, by the grace of the guru and all that, run away. Sure. You know, and and so Ooh, like that's w- definitely put me on the outs with that, a lot of people. That's yeah. uh, that's a hot one here here on the uh, Ashtanga podcast. They're definitely. Frank about, uh, 
being anti-running away from any of that guru yeah. worship. And I, um, I'm with you on that. I'm, I'm super with you. I have studied a bit of Zen Buddhism myself. I do know more than I let on. I do know a little bit more about me Buddhism. But, um, and so that's interesting. I've also had that observation about um, particularly Zen Buddhism about the, as you put it, deitizing, you know. Yeah, deifying. Deifying, yeah. there we go. That was Mahayana Buddhism in general. They took this guy and kind of elevated it, you know, and it mm-hmm. became like a cosmic principle. Sure. And um, I, you know, I, I'm deeply, uh, I, I came back to it because, I, like I said, I was a science student, but um, I went into a lot of, other aspects, and I did actually uh, try on some of the new agey woo stuff, uh-huh. and then came around. Like I, you know, like my awakening <laughs> was breaking from those kinds of pseudoscientific, you know. Can you ideas. give us an example? Yeah, like um, I, I reject vitalism. Therefore, I don't believe in chi or prana as some reality. I, I talk about it metaphorically, you know, like you walk into a place and you get a sense of the energy of the group, but there's no energy. Energy is a very strictly defined term. I wrote a blog piece about it, you mm-hmm. know. It's a matter, it's basically a measurement of the capacity for work, right? Mm-hmm. And so that's one example, you know, like I, um, I don't feel a need to like talk about, you know, that as something ontologically existing, mm-hmm. you know. Vitalism was uh, a principle that lasted for a long time, but science pretty much jettisoned it over a hundred some odd years ago. Mm. Mm. And mm-hmm. I don't see any need for you know, mm-hmm. for that. That's I one think example. That's, that's interesting because, first of all, I really res- I love that definition of energy as another science person of like, oh yeah, of course, the capacity to do work. Like that's the, <laughs> the base definition of energy. And here in kind of quote unquote new agey circles, we, we lengthen that definition yeah. into something so <laughs> large. And I really think that it was helpful for me actually to kind of open my mind to the invitation that there is this other thing that I cannot see that can be felt because I just disregarded it before. Um, but I also think it's important to, I don't know, not to play the middle here, yeah. but, like, to find that balance, I guess, of, like, I needed to open my mind, and maybe some people need to pull it back a little bit. Well, see, what I, what I say is, like, again, metaphorically, right, you're talking about a subjective experience, right, I, which I can guarantee I probably have had, you know? Mm-hmm. Sure. But then... What I see happening over and over again in the yoga Buddhist worlds and the New Age worlds and everything else is that a subjective experience that someone has is reified into a ontologically truly existent thing, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. That reification is the, the making of a thing of something, right, of, of an experience. And, um, and that's where I think a lot of thinking goes wrong mm-hmm. in that culture, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm not denying that you can have an experience, but mm-hmm. like people say, you know, again, they're immaterial and all that. If, if it's immaterial, right, there's a lot that's immaterial, right? If you're going to claim it exists and it's something that can be felt, then it can be measured. By definition, if it's supernatural, we mm-hmm. have no access to it. We can't even feel it. No. We, you know, this body-mind is a natural organism, right? Yeah. Yeah. So... Um, so, like, people say, well, you know, you, you're, you're, like, uh, you're falling into this trap. It's like, you know, just because you can't see the, the chi, you know, like you can an organ or something. Mm-hmm. But if you're telling me chi actually has an effect on the natural world, then it should be scientifically able to be verified. Mm-hmm. And nothing has been found that fits the bill, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so, again, I, can, I talk about energy metaphorically, but people know I'm talking mm-hmm. metaphorically, you know. Yeah, but have you seen that video of that one guy in some Chinatown somewhere setting the newspaper on fire with just his hands? Yeah, mm-hmm. lots of tricks like that. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny, because even in the Upanishads, you know, it talks about the self, for instance, right? With a big S, right? Um, and Buddhism has 
rejected the idea of self, mm-hmm. right? And yet, especially in contemporary Western Buddhism and the mind, what sometimes we refer to as the Mick mindfulness movement, sure, right? Uh, the new age it, mindfulness movement. It's, it's become all, uh, you know, like they flinch from the implications of the Buddhist teachings on not self. And they, they put in these subtle atmans or selves, you know. And it's also what's behind, I think, both in yoga, contemporary yoga and in mindfulness, this um, permea- you know, the permeation of neoliberal ideology, mm-hmm. right? And it's propping up this neoliberal uh, ideology. Sure. Right? And the radical teaching of the Buddha, though, could completely dismantle that kind of thought. And so that's what, again, I, puts me on the outs with a lot of contemporary Buddhists because here's an example. I don't want to drop names, but a very famous Buddhist teacher teaching uh, an online retreat for Tricycle Magazine on the Noble Eightfold Path in the description of Sila, which is the ethical training, so these five precepts are like guidelines to how we relate in the world. It's about right action in the world, right? Mm-hmm. And the description for this retreat was about how the ethical trainings literally are, you know, like make you feel good about yourself. <laughs> and I was like, what? <laughs> You know, um, Buddhism, Buddhism has never really fa- made me feel good about myself. It's made me feel. It's made yeah, but me if you want to sell it in these words, like this is the thing. It's like people, people would rather feel good than face the truth. Sure. Mm. Right. And you know, I have, I have jettisoned lots of things I would rather exist or be, because I follow the evidence. You know, mm-hmm. and if the evidence is not there. Even if I prefer that this, idea, you know, this belief were, were real, I'm not going to delude myself, yeah. you know? It's like I'd rather just face the reality. And so, like, this idea of not-self, um, if it's not understood, it can be really scary and all that. But really, all the Buddha is saying is that it's not that you don't exist, but you don't exist as it might feel like you exist mm-hmm. or seems like you exist as this entity, this atomistic entity, sure. right? It might be better to say that selfing is happening, right? We're more like a gerund than a noun, right? And when I look wow. at myself, at this you know, empirical self, what I find is elements that are not Frank Jude. Sure. Mm-hmm. And they come together to create something that we can label Frank Jude, right? Mm-hmm. The example I often give is the laundry. You know, we do the laundry, but really there's no thing that the word laundry points to other than a pile of underwear and socks and T-shirts and pants mm-hmm. and all that, right? Mm-hmm. So it's what a, ph- a philosopher is called a convenient designator. It's easier to say I have to do the laundry than I have to wash six pairs of socks, five pairs of pants, mm-hmm. and a dozen chonies, you know? <laughs> And so that's actually a very freeing understanding because then when we look at the way things are, we realize they're not the way they are by nature, right? But by causes and conditions. And if we don't like the way things are, then we don't attack the thing we attack the causes and conditions. Yeah, yeah, right? entirely. Wow. Um, and and our culture is miserable at doing that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we seem to not do that. We yeah. seem to just was, react at the thing at the thing that's happening yeah. at the event, not the causes and conditions. Yeah. I was having a really wonderful conversation with my mom earlier. One of those conversations where two people can just talk about something, and neither is getting offended, really, but both can just really explore these ideas that kind of make you un- make them uncomfortable mm-hmm. um, which I think is like in my opinion I love I love having a conversation and that's a gold standard for me where we can talk about something that makes us uncomfortable or makes one of us just a little uncomfortable but we feel safe about it and where nobody's attaching it to their ego and taking 
the conversation personally. Mm. Do, you, do you see what I'm saying? Yes. But So it can develop and really unfold. And what we landed on was um, just talking. I just realized that uh, so many conversations that I've had or observed, um, and I've done this as well, have have kind of abruptly halted before we can go into any depth because me or another party involved has like attached it to my identity mm. or my ego and taken it personally and then and then just shut down and became reactive. And I think one of the best things that's come out of my yoga practice, my meditation practice has been kind of we can call it non-reactivity, but really just not not attaching what I'm hearing to who I am in the moment and being able to kind of um, untangle how I can apply it to the components of myself, my mm-hmm. conditioning, like you were saying. Yeah. I love that concept. It's also why very comforted to know, comforting to know that I think within that, as like this body is just a body and assortment of parts um, that you can, there's so much liberation in that, that you can, mm-hmm. you can do anything. You can be anyone, you can change who you are and, and your behaviors, your actions and in, in any way. And it's just more malleable physical forms that exist in uh, a material world. And it blows and, my mind. And, and as a collective though, right? So sure. like, um, how can I be truly free when there are others who are not, right? So with that kind of understanding, then, again, you, you need to be working, you know, like the, the false dualism of, like, inner work and outer work or something, you know. It's like, that's a false dualism because we have to, um, we, we live, even our sense of identity is a construct that requires um, basically mirroring, right? Like my daughter, I remember... Th- very vividly when she was really young I would if she was upset I would bring her into the bathroom to look at the baby in the mirror and it would really calm her down and sometimes she would kiss the baby in the mirror and all that and at a certain age we walked into a we were traveling so we were in a hotel and the door closed and there was a mirror behind the door and she's like I see myself right that developed like if, because I and her, and her mom were seeing her, or people were seeing her. Mm-hmm. There's a, a neuroscientist named Bruce Hood who wrote a book called The Self-Delusion. I think it's called The Self-Illusion. I don't know. But he talks about how um, the whole sense of a self requires the other, right? Mm-hmm. And if, if there were not that, you would not develop self-consciousness, self-awareness. Sure. But it's interesting because in my Zen training, for instance, um, the people that are training with me, rather, I should say, um, that's one book that they read, but they also read another book called The Feeling of What Happens by another neuroscientist, Antonio Damasio. And he explains how, like right now, I have a sense of who I am and how I relate to you two, and I've got all this history behind me, and that's what I am, mm-hmm. right? But that is like a house of cards. It's the, uh, that's the self I have access to, right? Like sure. what my thoughts are and all that. That rests upon what he calls the uh, core self, which is the way the neurons in my brain fire, which are different than yours, right? But I have no access to them. And under the, that, even less, you know, like there's no access period, is just the neurons are firing. Now, if the neurons stop firing, the empirical self is gone, away. right? And that's what I saw with my mom who had Alzheimer's. I mean, like, I, she was gone way before she died, mm. right? That's what we are. We are our memories, you know? Uh, and there's no way to have a relationship without that. And then you hear these people talking about, like, you know, get rid of your stories and everything else. You can't, right? But what we can do is become more aware of the construction of the stories, and if we don't like them, work to change them, right? Mm-hmm. The stories are our ideologies, and the, uh, the mechanisms with which our ideologies are constructed. And we, again, in America, you know, <laughs> if you buy the, the story that America's cultures tells us, is that 
uh, ideology ended. You know, like there's that famous book, The End of Ideology, and somehow we are ideology free. Well, that's exactly our ideology. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and and so like in one of my blogs, I wrote it's been said it's not just you know my thinking, but it's like you've got this denial of ideology, this hypervalorization of the individual that we see in neoliberalism, right? And and it just and capitalism, right? Mm -hmm. Which you know, which is the people can visualize the end of the world, but they cannot visualize the end of capitalism. Sure, right? And that's what I'm talking about—the reification. Capitalism has been so reified, uh, and in conjunction with this idea of the neoliberal, that people can't imagine something other. You know, anything different. Define yeah. reified. Reify literally means like you, you, you make a thing, right? So, you, um, like assigning meaning to it so much that it just becomes a thing. As itself. if it exists independently and it's a, it's a, you've entered, like you've made it into an entity. Like okay. Citizens United, right? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. That's a really good example. It's like this idea, of, like, of, um, that's another example of this reifying. It's like, um, and sometimes, like, if you're doing it poetically, it, it, it's fine. It's like, you know, in a poem, I might describe my love of someone, you know, as as a bridge and all this stuff. And, all that. and it's sure. like, that's kind of a, a reifying <clears throat> image, you know. And so we do that all the time. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. Truth, justice in the American way. Mm -hmm. Show it to me. What? Right. You know? Show it to me. <laughs> oh, God. So going back to capitalism, it's a construct that basically we've given so much energy to that it's become well, in, an entity. In, the, in, in, the, in people's minds, it's like it's, it's almost been elevated into a law of nature like gravity. Sure. sure. Right. That there could be no other. It's yeah. that it's just this was the natural way in which the world was to develop, and had we a different set of cir set of circumstances, this would yeah. be the exact same thing. I, I, I've had these conversations. People are afraid to think about what would happen if capitalism ended, uh -huh. and they seem to be more afraid of that than of like the, the climate catastrophe that we're facing, <laughs> things scared like that. Of climate change, you know, which. And what's interesting, though, is like there there are thinkers like there's a really great website uh, about the possibility. I mean, like we could create what's called a steady state economy, mm -hmm. right? Because capitalism, think about what capitalism's about. It's about growth, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Like Trump just announced again, they want to open up some part of the Arctic for, you know, like opening up for more oil development mm. and it's like jobs, jobs, jobs. Right. Like, but this kind of unrestrained growth is exactly the definition of cancer. Right. Right? So like steady state economy is one where the, the expenditure in and out are relatively the same. There's going to be peaks and valleys and all that, but stretch out over time, there, it doesn't require growth in order for uh, a kind of maximum... Sure. In order uh, to have a base level stability, you yeah. don't always have to be pushing for the top yeah. all the time. Where we're still exchanging money yeah. as a... We're still exchanging yeah. capital, but it's yeah. not. Okay. There can definitely be. And it's a great website. Um, I've shared it a lot. I've read it. You know, I've, I've tried to turn more people into at least thinking about this as a possibility, mm -hmm. you know? I'm, but, you know, the neoliberalism, you know, people think, oh, God, he's harping on that again and all that. But it's like... No, it's, it's so important so to lay to the neoliberals. It, well, <laughs> for instance, a couple of years ago, Google was sponsoring something called Wisdom 2.0 in San Francisco, right? Mm. And some protesters took the stage because with the, the Silicon Valley and, and all the tech people there and all that, a lot of people have lost their homes because the, the rental market went crazy sure. right and so they went out there talking about evictions and, and all that and you know people came on they they corralled them off the stage got rid of them and the next thing the person says is like okay so return to what's feel what you're feeling about that what just happened and everything else you know and and like what it's like to be you know like maybe you you're feeling a little you know defensive or whatever it's all about what are you feeling 
And not even one question about, like, why they felt they needed to protest. Right. What were they saying, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, the If you're stressed at work, the locus of the stress is you. So you should do mindfulness practice. And fucking ignore the fact that we're asking you to work 60 hours a week. Right. <laughs> you know? Right. And we're watching you on the webcam yeah. while you're working from yeah. home now, too. Yeah. So that, and that's neoliberal Mick mindfulness, yeah. essentially what you're describing. Not looking at the source. Yeah, yeah, like you know, John Kabat-Zinn, who you know, has, his definition of, first of all of mindfulness, which has become talk about something becoming reified. It's like you open up any contemporary mindfulness book where mindfulness is now being taught in the psychotherapy context. And you'll hear it described as like a kind of non-reactive, non-judgmental, present moment awareness. Well, that's a really good description of dementia. <laughs> wow. My mom was in the moment. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Totally. Wow. Right? But there's no such thing ultimately as an atomistic moment. This moment now is the sum total of the moments that came before. Right? When the Buddha taught mindfulness in this sati, is the word that we translate as mindfulness. And it comes from the word sarati, which means remembering, memory, Mm. right? So if you look at the mindfulness instructions that the Buddha gave, yes, you have to pay attention to the present moment non-reactively, because if you react, then you're no longer in touch with what's really happening, right? Like if, if, if I stub my toe, right, and I get caught in my reaction, I've actually created, you know, kind of psychic amputation, right? Think about what you usually do when you stub your toe. You tense all the muscles in your legs and you push it away, right? Sure. So, like, that. What, what sati is, though, is, like, not reacting to the present in order to look at how and what causes and conditions led to this present moment. Why? Because if the present moment sucks... You want to not do those things in the future. So there's a retrospective memory and a prospective memory, Mm. right? I want to remember how this moment came to be so I can remember in the future not to do that, right? Mm -hmm. And, And so the way it's described in the sutra is like become aware of the causes and conditions that lead to the suffering. Become aware of the causes and conditions that maintain the suffering. Become aware of the causes and conditions that lead to the end of the suffering and then cultivate and become aware of what conditions will prevent its future arising. Yeah. So the whole point of mindfulness is to make better judgments, <laughs> better uh, decisions. Ah, okay. All right? Which is a bit that I've, I've come to before. I'm like, wait a second. I feel like I'm supposed to make some judgments around right. here. <laughs> just, Not just like- nothing <laughs> makes me cringe more when I hear a yoga teacher goes like, notice if you're judging, let go of the judgment. And it's like, you just judge judging. <laughs> <laughs> and you judged it. As something I, bad. Yeah, I right? think uh, what in Ashtanga oh, we call that, that's, wow. the, that's the sort of discrimination that we the talk sort about. sort of the, discernment. That came yeah. up in the conversation yeah. I had with my mom today, oh, too. About just like, we were talking about um, the Bible. And at one point in my life, I identified as an atheist. I was like, my parents never raised me with any religion, so I considered myself. I consider myself an atheist and I considered the Bible to be relatively alive. So just so you know where I'm coming from with that. But through my journey, I have realized that the Bible is a book that carries a lot of power because it has been here for a long time and humans have read it. Reified. As the word of God. Ah. You can't get more reified than that. Yeah. It's not the work of any Iron Age men, it's God. Yeah, but no, but we were talking about, you know, people can, especially if that's their spiritual past, can take some good from that and also cut away, discern what does not serve them, what does not serve their community, which we just talked about is not separate, um, is not separate from themselves. I just think that that's so important. That's an, it's, that is the tool that has, now I'm realizing, has really helped me. Yeah. Well, the word for discernment, viveka, right? V, the, at VI preface, we see in division, vivisection, it's analysis. In, in Buddhist meditation, vipassana mm. is 
sometimes translated as insight meditation, but yeah. it comes from, it's a kind of analytical practice. Oh. And it's, it's, it's funny because it's like, I remember when I was invited to teach at um, Yogaville, which is the ashram for integral yoga. And the swamis there took my retreat and they were like, whoa, you know, some of them had been practicing for 30 years and more, but like they were practicing what in the Buddhist tradition we call shamatha, which is concentration, like just on a mantra or something, right, to the exclusion yeah. of everything else. Yeah. And they were like, whoa, you, this is meditation? We have to use our mind? It's like, in this meditation you do? Yeah. yeah. And the, the, the thing I wanted to get back to finish with my point about memory, right, is like the the idea of like the causes that lead to this, if the present moment is awesome, you also want to know the conditions right. because you want to keep doing them. Yeah. Right. Mm. And so again, it's like why I said that, you know, it sounded flippant perhaps about the venture. My mom was in the moment, but you couldn't have a relationship with her because she didn't remember who you were. Right. Right. And so mindfulness, if you just pay attention to the moment, you're not cultivating relationship. Yeah. And it is an absolutely relational practice. It's much more horizontal, you know. It's not atomistic. It's like we live in time, in the, in the midst of context and relationship, and satipatthana, the, the, the practice of mindfulness, is, bringing, is basically a practice of conscious relationship. Well, consider my mind fucking blown right now, I think. <laughs> <laughs> Conscious relationship. Wow. Wow. That's amazing. I've mentioned a couple times on this podcast. I just read Teachings on Love. Um, By Thich Nhat Hanh? Thich And um, just that statement made me think of so many things that he had said in that book. Conscious relationship. And not just with the person we have a quote-unquote intimate relationship with or the people we have intimate relationships with, but with everyone that we relate to everywhere. Right? In 1976, Swami Satchidananda said to me, yoga is relationship. And it took the first 30 years of my practice for me to really get it. Mm. Right? It's nothing but that. How do I relate to these thoughts that come up in my head that I am not choosing to have? Mm -hmm. Right? You can't predict your next thought. Right? You have thoughts, I assume, like everybody else, that you would rather not have. Mm-hmm. So, like, what does that tell us about what these thoughts are? Are they mine? Right? We, so, we, we think of, you know, we tend to relate to thinking as one of the most intimate personal things about us. And it's completely impersonal. Yeah. Right? So how do I relate to thoughts? How do I relate to the body? How do I relate? I mean, I haven't even gotten to, like, how do I relate to my lover, my child, my parents, my co-workers, how do I relate to Donald Trump? How do I relate? Mm-hmm. It's like, it's all relationship, you know? And it yeah. starts with the mind. Mm-hmm. How do I, how, what is the relationship to these thoughts that come up? We call Donald Trump 45 on this podcast because we're trying to already strip him of power <laughs> pre- preemptively. Let's, you know, fingers crossed it's really going to happen. Um, oh, wow, though. That, I don't even know what to say. You're leaving me pretty speechless here. Frank. I'm, trying to, <laughs> I'm trying to have a reaction to oh, what? Uh, your... Uh, I, I'm, I'm being left speechless here. I'm, I'm, being, I'm trying to have a reaction, but I, I feel... It feels... Um, antithetical right now to like I'm just gonna be like no Mm -hmm. I'm just actually just gonna observe everything (laughs) part of the the reason why we wanted to start this podcast because we're pretty young people we haven't been alive for very long let alone doing yoga for very long for 25 years now (laughs) and which is less than some of the people we've interviewed have been doing yoga right very true and um part of the reason was just because we wanted to, to have these conversations ourselves to learn to gain perspectives and I just thank you for that perspective I like I I would want to ask um if there was I mean we've talked about a lot here if there was like one or two things a message you could send to people from what you've learned in your life that relates to what's going on in the world right now a, a teaching a practice a tool uh what would it be oof 
one thing. <laughs> one and or like, two, well, yeah. You know, um, it's, I, I just got involved in this like email letter exchange with a student who's really going through a lot of difficulty uh, with loss, personal loss on top of everything else with this pandemic. And I think he was at first surprised that my initial response was a quote from uh, Albert Camus, right? Um, in the myth of Sisyphus. Well, let's put a pause to this. Is military industrial complex, you know? Sound of freedom, right? Yeah, that's freedom. <laughs> you know, you're talking about American ideology? <laughs> Boom, right there, baby. <laughs> Industrial conflicts definitely also beified. They beified. Made a thing only because it was doing so many things. As you were saying, Sisyphus. In the myth of Sisyphus, Camus basically says that the, you know, like he, he sometimes lumped them with the existentialists, but he actually was very critical of them. Uh, and he taught about the absurd and the absurdity of life, right? Um, and, and he uses the, the myth of Sisyphus as an example. It's like, you know that myth, right? Sisyphus rolls the rock up to the top of the mountain, and then it rolls back down. And he's got to roll it back up, and that's what he's going to be doing for eternity, right? And Camus is like saying how we live in this universe, in this world, and the only real philosophical uh, question is suicide, right? Because you're going to die and it's over, right? And so, like, we all know how the story ends. Do you paper it over with all sorts of stories? Or do you, like, grab it, you know, and affirm it and enter into it, you know, and kind of accept the absurdity of it? And what's interesting is that when you can do that, there's a kind of freedom and joy, right? Mm -hmm. That in some ways, as Camus argues, can't, if, if you get to that point, it can't be taken away from you. Whereas if you've made a meaning for yourself, personal, like this is what the existentialist said. Yeah, the existentialist also said, like, there's no meaning to life other than what the meaning you give it, right? Mm -hmm. But, you know, that could maybe be threatened or taken away. So sure. Camus saying, don't even put that there. And you just <laughs> enter in, into it, you know? And, and she was like, you know, kind of taken aback and then started to get it and started laughing, you know, at the absurdity of it, mm -hmm. you know? Um, so by we all know how it ends, you mean death. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. And like, at some point or another, our sun is going to, in its death throes, expand so much that it's going to engulf the earth. So yeah. like, all of it has a lifespan. Right? There's a, mm -hmm. there's, you know. Yeah. And, uh, and yet, we get up in the morning and we go and we do right and that's a powerful position to be in right sometimes people say like it so sounds so bleak what makes you want to get out of bed try staying in bed yeah. <laughs> you're gonna get out anyway you know it's like that's Just, a false dilemma it's a sure. false question it's like if you really believe that it sounds so bleak you know it's like if you've got no free will and everything else then what's why bother getting out of bed I'm like well try not getting out of bed. You will get out of bed. Mm -hmm, yeah. Mm -hmm, you know? Mm -hmm. Wow. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to transition here. Um, so I know you're a huge fan of 45 here, Frank. <laughs> and, uh, so, not really, no, Frank's not. Um, but I, I have a few uh, documents here that I've received from my grandfather in, in the mail. We've we've unpacked a couple of we've, these on 
this has been a, a this couple months. This is a reoccurring months, theme um, here on Eight Limbs of Fury that I bring these documents onto the podcast. So, so I'm just going to hand these over to you. I'm handing Frank right now three documents stapled together, um, hand-drawn and photocopied by my grandfather himself, clippings of uh, newspaper articles and... Um, T-graphs, I'm going to call it, where you have left and left and right side comparisons Quite of, literally. of various topics. One of them is there on there, Black Lives Matter and All Lives Matter. He's got a very extensive graph and um, a few newspapers articles. And Frank, I just want to hear just want to hear a hot take from you coming from this and give me a, give me a thought here. Jeez, <laughs> uh, you know. <laughs> Well, you know, what's, what struck me right away here, it's really funny. Uh, so who is this? Your this is my grandfather. grandfather. My, my blood grandfather. He's the media loves to attack President Trump and ignores Joe Biden's foot and mouth disease. I want to share with you a number of his comments. Uh, so I haven't noticed that the media is ignoring Joe Biden's foot and mouth disease. Uh-uh, no. You know, that's... Part of who Joe has been for the 30 years he's been in politics. Sure. Right? So I don't, uh, that, that's a false argument. And I'm not denying, I mean, like, Biden sometimes sounds like he's got dementia, you know? Certainly. He's, uh, yeah, so like, um, but uh, the, uh, the idea that somehow, yeah, uh, like, I'm not a big fan of Biden. No. no, no Nobody's <laughs> a big we. fan of Biden. Nobody this podcast <laughs> is anti-QAnon and reluctantly <laughs> okay with Joe we're Biden. We're okay with Bi- Joe Biden, but, like, that's about it. I wouldn't even say I'm for him. I'm just okay with him. Oh, my gosh. Senator Harris wants to raise capital gains tax from 21% to 28%? Oh, that's Horrible. My, horrible. <laughs> you know, why? How old is this guy? Is 82. He gave right. his age up there. So can't he possibly remember the 50s? Because I'm younger than him. And, you know, I'm old enough to have some memory of what things were like coming out of the 50s. Because I was already five years old in 1960, right? Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. So, like, the tax rate under Eisenhower was two and a half to three times more than what it is now. Yeah. Wow. And my father was able to buy a house and put me through college because the middle class was never stronger than in those post-World War II years when the top tax rate was close to 90%. Yeah. Right? Um, and now... <laughs> economically in terms of income I you know I'm not anywhere near where my father was back then mm-hmm. yeah right so how does a man get to be his age and not see that the middle class has been decimated by neoliberal politics when a guy like Chomsky can say that Nixon was the last new age president right Clinton was horrible. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right? And every president since, right, has been a neoliberal ideologue, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so it just seems like, again, a typical American ahistorical consciousness. Ahistorical consciousness. <laughs> uh, I love that phrase. It might be uh, Fox News historic context is, is how he's approaching it. He, my grandfather, Possibly. I would definitely say, suffers from Fox News brain. Yeah. And uh, Black Lives Matter and All Lives Matter. This is a little comparison, huh? Give us a couple there. <laughs> Read us some. From Dr. Mongo? Dr. Mongo, yeah, he has a PhD. He's got a PhD in something. I think it's education, okay. too. So is- Black Lives Matter, apparently, is... Um, well, here's one that's really funny, right? Pro-Palestinians, whereas All Lives Matter is for the Jewish state. Uh, you could be... Um, you don't have to be anti-Semitic to be anti-Zionist. Sure. Um, I support the Palestinian uh, movement for uh, liberation. I think 
there could have easily been a two-state solution if um, America wasn't such an obstructionist mm -hmm. over time. Um, and, you know, when you talk about free enterprise system capitalism, it's not free. No, it ain't free out here, capitalism. Yeah. You can't so, just do whatever you yeah. want out here. And then, oh, like, I love this one. Black Lives Matter is for social justice. All lives matter is for equal justice for all. <laughs> Again, equal justice for all sounds like a great idea. It makes me think of Mahatma Gandhi, you know, when he was asked about Western civilization, saying that it, would, it sounds like a good idea. You know? Sure, sure. It, it sounds like a good yeah, idea. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's all he said. Uh, right? Yeah, well, actually, I think he said it would be a good idea, like basically saying it, we don't have it, right? But like equal justice for all is what we, again, pretend to. That's what we say happens in our justice system, right? Oh, I love this one. Black Lives Matter promotes evil. All Lives Matter promotes good. <laughs> <laughs> From grandpa's mouth to your ears, yeah. folks. I guess his pen. <laughs> wow, yeah, that's okay. that's a great that's a great one to finish on because I think that sums up those tables. Yeah, that about, that we about got the first it. one in the mail and we unpacked it on an episode that we had the one we had Lauren on. Um, and ever since we've just every couple weeks we've been getting one in the mail. Mm. That's like my fifth packet Which I've gotten in the mail. Also, props to. Pops to Dr. Mongo for putting himself out there and sending this to all the young grandkids that he has. He sends it to everyone in my family. Wow. Like uh, his his sons and daughters, so my my dad and his sisters, and sends it to the grandkids too. Apparently, gosh, yeah. he's probably sending out like fifty well, of these every week. I, or so. I actually don't know. It's like you know, the empire is definitely falling. It's collapsing, mm -hmm. um, and. The polarization is like nothing I've ever seen. It's wild, um, isn't it? So, and, and I don't, you know, like, I'd like to be a glass half full kind of guy, but Oof. I think things are going to just get worse. Yeah. Um, and, um, yeah, I, you know, it, it, it's bleak. It's bleak. I wrote a song um, whose chorus is, uh, they're going to curse, they're going to, curse us as we rot in our graves all those who come after us yeah oh certainly certainly i've i i first of all thank you for coming out uh with that as 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 a stance there as a mindfulness person to taking uh, a good look at the reality of the causes and conditions around you and going like this is bad and it's only going to get worse and we need to do something about it otherwise it's just going to keep getting mm -hmm. worse and I think even, even the doing something about it maybe fe feels futile to <laughs> a lot of yeah. days. Well, the, the anti-intellectualism alone, which has always been, you know, like a streak in American culture and politics in general. But like, um, I mean, I think the book on America, like the classic book on American anti-intellectualism came out sometime in the 50s. And it's only gotten worse. And... You know, lots of people talk about the 60s and all that. I lived through the 60s, and the anti-intellectualism of the hippies, right, which I, were obviously my generation, but it was the baby boomers. Again, that's why I said I was, I've always been on an outlier. Uh -huh. <laughs> like, I never felt like I identified with them. Mm -hmm. um, what is a major factor in why things are so bad right now. Mm -hmm. From mm -hmm. the hippies? Yeah. Anti-intellectualism. Well, yeah. And it's I funny because like the, the, the mythology is how, you know, the age of Aquarius and how wonderful they were and all that. And it's like, no. Mm. <laughs> you know? <laughs> it's like the, they, they were so selfish. Certainly. Right? Mm -hmm. it, the, look what came right as they, as they aged, the 80s and the neoliberalism and all that, right? All this so, just happened. Yeah, it kind of... Yeah. I don't... Would you say they let it happen? They created it. They made it. Oh, they made it. Wow. They reified it. Yeah. <gasps> they, you know, it was like... And it, it's, it's also... What was interesting is like... Um, you know, they, they, they probably self-identified as anti-authoritarian and as rebels and all that. Sure. But like, look at what they did. They 
completely swallowed, you know, whatever they were told by their Asian gurus and teachers. Mm-hmm. You know, they went to India, became enlightened, came back, and just just were floating through time and space, being problematic for. But a long I, well, time. I mean, like I saw, I, I I was there. I was like, in, you know, like watching these people, like kowtowing and bowing down, and like just never questioning what their yogi teachers were saying. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, like I remember, you know, um, at the zendo, being told that. You don't need anything other than zazen, sitting meditation. Yeah. You don't need therapy. You don't need yoga. You don't need any of that stuff. And I was like, well, fuck that. I'm going to practice my yoga, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so I had to hide it, you know? But, like... that's That sounds so rebellious. I'm just picturing you secretly doing asana <laughs> <laughs> like at a Buddhist monastery. Right. Like. But then at the ashram, right, I was the only one who wasn't, like, you know, kissing the guru's feet, yeah. you know? It was like... Right. So I was, I never fit in anywhere. <laughs> and I was happy with that, actually. Oh, I think that's great. I, You know, we talked about reification ray-fi- ray-fi- today. Learned go. a new word. Um, we talked about the Bible, how, you know, there's a certain amount of discernment that's healthy there. I take that with yoga, yeah. too, for sure. Yeah. Question, if we don't question our teachers, yeah. um, I think that's a sacred relationship, the teacher-student relationship, and I think there's space for questioning yeah. both ways. I think, you know, um, there's a, a book called Hardcore Zen by Brad Werner, um, who was also involved in the punk scene, and he's a Zen teacher, Japanese Zen tradition. Um, and I think he said something, I might be paraphrasing it, but I really liked, because I'm critical of some other things he says, <laughs> of course, right? Of course. I'm Mr. <laughs> Curmudgeon great. right here. But <laughs> one thing he pointed out was like, you know, Punk was all about questioning authority and questioning, Hell yeah. Hell but yeah. they didn't question themselves. Mm. And if you're really serious about your Zen practice, your yoga practice, then the first person to question is you. Yeah. And then your teacher and everything else, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, I'm very transparent about what my personal beliefs are. My students don't have to buy every belief that I have. You know, mm-hmm. I know for a fact that I have some students, for instance, who believe in reincarnation or rebirth. I don't, right? They can still practice with me because it's, I'm much more practice-oriented, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, and, and on there, I, obviously they must feel they get a benefit because they stay with me, you know? Right. Yeah. Well, they might gain something from your teachings that you didn't even think that they would gain, right? (sighs) I think that's a wonderful way to close this up. One last final question. Okay. you're critical of so much... (laughs) What are you not critical of? What do you just accept and love and you just... What what are you not critical of? My love for my daughters? There you go. Wonderful. I don't question that. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, really, it's like... In the yoga world and Buddhism, the word criticism and critical has this pejorative tone or meaning. But, Mm -hmm. like, critical thinking is essential for freedom. Yeah. Right? And I've also tried to... Like, I'm I'm a... Literally, I'm not joking, although I don't have it in my wallet anymore because I've thinned out my wallet. But for a while there, I was a literal card-carrying member of the Skeptical Society mm. and the Committee for Critical Inquiry. I love right? that. Skepticism is just reasoning, questioning, yeah. observation. Mm-hmm. Right? You tell me something, the more improbable it is, the more evidence I want. Simple mm-hmm. as that, yeah. right? Carl Sagan right. said the extreme claims requires extreme evidence. If I tell you there's a dog back there, you've, you know, I might be lying, but, like, this, the probability is pretty high. Sure, right? yeah, I don't have to give alley. much evidence, right? But if I say there's, like, a fire-breathing dragon over there on the other side, you want some evidence, yeah. right? right? But then, you know, what they do is, like, well, actually, you know, it's invisible, and it's like, and like, it doesn't, and like, all right, well, if it's invisible, maybe I'll just like spray paint and it'll stick to it and then I'll see it. It's like, oh no, it's incorporeal. Well, if you keep doing that, if there's no way to experience it, 
I'm not going to accept it. Mm. Mm-hmm. Right? Back to that, like, you can't right. measure it. If right. it has no effect on the, on the material world, then it may as well not exist. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. Even the Buddha said, like, you know, um, his teaching on not self was to try, it's like a medicine to break us from our tenacious grasping at self. But ultimately, he said, there may or may not be a self, but it doesn't, it, but you have no access to it. Yeah. And that's, again, getting back to what the Upanishad said. Like, by definition, the self is pure subjectivity. So it could never be an object of knowledge. So it's just a matter of faith. And it has no real effect because you can't access it. Yeah. So you can choose to, as an act of faith, believe you have this self or you can say, well, you know, I don't have any need for that hypothesis. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's the metaphysics right yeah. there. <sighs> that's liberation, Frank. That really is, in my opinion. <clears throat> well, um, I think that about does this. Thanks here. for uh, yeah, inviting any, me out. Of here, course. Yeah. Thank you for being here. Uh, anything you want to plug? I've, I know there's some Yeah, we wanted to plug. ask, like, what are, what are your offerings right now? Um, well, the, the, the nine-month training on ethics mm-hmm. is full full um, great but yeah um but i am like um through mindfulnessyoga.net which is my website i have a blog there if people want to like investigate my essays that are pretty wide reaching like i did this one that i was actually very happy with that talks about the scope of practice oh, and nice. what a, the scope of you know for a teacher what is the real scope there um and things like that. So mindfulnessyoga.net, mindfulness yoga, all one word. And it also um, has a link. I'm actually, during this pandemic, I've been offering meditation, as you've joined me a couple of times. Sometimes twice a day, but almost always at least once a day. And through mindful yoga and Tucson yoga, I'm teaching three asana classes online Mm. every week. Great. Um, Hopefully I'll be offering workshops online and all that, but the... The ethics course is pretty in-depth, and it's going to be nine months. So. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Wonderful. <laughs> I'll, have to, I'll have to join you for one of those courses in the future, because those super interest me. They really um, do, well, yeah. You know, it, it strikes me as funny when people always want these, like, esoteric, like, feel-wild, transcendent kind of things, uh-huh. when really, you know, and they think of the ethics as kind of like the, the groundwork mm-hmm. for the good stuff, but, like, the sila, the ethical training is the heart of everything, mm. right? There's this really beautiful story. The Zen master is 86 years old, and student is like, come on, what's the most esoteric, you know, like uh, amazing deep teaching of the Buddha? And he says, to do good, to avoid evil, and to keep a clear mind. And the guy says, like, any six-year-old can say that. <laughs> and he goes, yeah, and I'm 86, and I still haven't perfected it. Right? <laughs> yeah. That's what it's about. Oh, wow. Oh, man. I love that. As someone who works with kids, <laughs> I appreciate that. Well, great, Frank. Right. Well, thanks for being Frank here with us. Thank you both evening. again. Thank you so much, uh, Frank Dude. Yeah, check him out, and we'll, we'll have his info plugged in, plugged in, in the information. Have a good uh, week, everyone. Happy new moon. Set some new That's today. We're patterns. recording on a new moon. Yeah. Um, stay safe out there and be kind to each other. Yeah? Yep. Great. Be kind. Bye. Limbs of fury!